iOS helps you control which apps you share your exact location with. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Yo. Technology. What is it all about? Because what you don't want is coal-powered lettuce. Exactly. Coal-powered lettuce is not what anyone wants to bite into. (laughs) Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. I'm your host... Danny Fortson, the West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times, coming to you live-ish from a farmhouse in the middle of an artichoke field. I'm not kidding. Um, yeah, so we are right near Monterey, California. Just a couple, just for a couple days, Mrs. F found a uh, found us an Airbnb to get a bit of change of scenery, which is well, it's certainly that. And to be honest, I had no idea what artichoke plants actually look like until today so now i do hashtag knowledge anyhow speaking of plants that is exactly what we are diving into this week that's right this week's guest is nate story who is the co-founder of plenty which is an indoor farming startup uh, but not just any indoor farming startup Uh, it is the best funded one in the world with folks like softbank Jeff Bezos, Eric Schmidt, many, many other billionaires. They just raised a bunch of more money, $140 million, which pushes their total cash to date to more than half a billion. And of course, only the or- most original, originalist, that's a word, the OGs of this podcast will remember that I first interviewed Story's co-founder, Matt Bernard, three years ago in the very, very early days of this pod. And funny enough, it was still pretty early days for the company. They were just still trying to basically prove that folding uh, an industrial-sized farm inside of a warehouse and using robots and machine learning algorithms to water and light and grow these plants was not a completely crazy idea. So three years on, I wanted to check in which I'm trying to do a little more of because if for no other reason, there's just a lot of storytellers out here, BSers, if you will. Um, and there's a lot of folks also who may just be overly ambitious or have had bad luck or for some other reason, they just crash and burn. And in fact, just by the numbers, that's what happens most often out here in Silicon Valley. So I just think it's worth checking in. I'm obviously trying to bat with a better average than that uh, with the guests we choose for the show. But I just think it's worth checking in to see kind of how things have come on since they've been on the show. So that's what we're doing this week to see if things are actually working. And in Plenty's case, they've been very, very busy. So they're actually selling stuff in supermarkets now, which they weren't before. It's still only in the Bay Area. But they've also just signed a deal with America's biggest berry company to grow strawberries. They're building their first farm beyond their bases in San Francisco and Wyoming. And as ever, there have been bumps in the road, but it is just a really interesting company tackling a very big problem, which of course is food. So that is what you're about to hear right now. So again, it is Nate Story. He's the co-founder of Plenty, and I will hand it over to him now. Enjoy. Thank you for taking the time. Yeah, my pleasure. Where are you? So I'm in Laramie right now, uh, Laramie, Wyoming. We've got a science team out here in a science facility, so I'm here for part of the week and in San Francisco for the rest of the week. I'm actually, like many people, we've taken a few days to not be in the four walls of our house. So I'm actually at an Airbnb in Castroville. Oh, yeah? Yeah, so we are in the middle of an artichoke farm, so I feel like this is a very appropriate uh, podcast to be recording this week. That's awesome. Well, look, so you may or may not know this, but three years ago, I had Matt Barnard, your co-founder, on this podcast, and we recorded it in 
a trailer in South San Francisco, and you guys had some stuff up and running, but it was still very much kind of things were a lot of things were happening, and obviously a lot of things have happened since then. So I don't know if it's worth just giving a brief overview of kind of what Plenty is and where you guys have got to, because obviously. Three years is a long time, and the world has changed quite a bit, and a lot has happened since then. Yeah, a lot has happened in the last three years, and if you were in the trailers, uh, then you know things look quite different at Punty mm. now. So since then, we've built and torn down and iterated on our farm multiple times. You've had to tear it down and rebuild it? Yep, tear it down and rebuild it. So build it, prove out certain elements of the farm, tear it down, rebuild it better, prove out additional elements. And so, uh, right. you know, that is... a uh, very intensive uh, process, but so that's that's definitely happened. Is that is that by design or is that by necessity or is it both? It's by design. So I mean, if you think about it, uh, you know, if you're building something like an iPhone or or say a smaller piece of technology, it's much easier to build and iterate, right? Um, because it's a smaller form factor. It's still a very expensive process, but you know, you can build it, tear it down, test it. Uh, do all of that work very, very easily and on a much smaller budget than you can to build something like a giant uh, farm. And yeah. so, um, you know, there are elements that we can build and test individually. And then there are some things that just have to be tested at scale. Right. And so, um, you know, it makes our problem set a little bit more interesting from a financial management standpoint, because one thing that is true about these farms is once you build them, that's how they're going to be. Like it's, <laughs> it's very, very hard to go into an yeah. operating farm and change things out, right? Uh, it just doesn't work that way. So we have to make sure that we have great tech uh, that we're scaling. Otherwise, we'll be locked into you know suboptimal economics. So yeah, uh, we've done that, and you know we've got a, a commercial farm open in South San Francisco. It's kind of a mix of production and, and research uh, testing, but you know that's that's running and supplying you know over forty stores across the Bay Area, and we're kind of expanding that. And is that plenty branded stuff? Yeah. Oh, okay. Because I live in Oakland, but I haven't seen any of your stuff in the stores, at least where I go. I know that we have some in Oakland. I'd have to look up the specific store. Yeah, because I think last time you guys were still, none of that was happening yet. Um, it was still kind of, as you say, you were in the kind of iteration phase. Yeah. So if you could just talk about kind of the differences between, you know, indoor growing, which are, you know, on the face of it, quite obvious, but also just in terms of the resources, how it works and why this is the why. Why do this? Why is this better? Yeah, you bet. Well, I mean, uh, the, the why part is really important to understand, and it's not well understood, right? Because people are used to walking into grocery stores and generally seeing lots of uh, fresh fruits and vegetables on the shelf. But the reality is, you know, for a healthy diet, Americans should consume around twice as much as they consume today in terms of fresh fruits and vegetables. And globally, right. people should be eating three times as much fresh fruits and vegetables as they currently consume. So uh, we see this as a problem, right? Because the leading cause of death around the world are diet-related diseases, you know, mm. when it comes down to it. And so this is kind of like the thing that's not spoken about very much, but this is like the next you know, human health crisis. And so that's kind of what we're out to solve, right? Is we know that people need to eat more fresh fruits and vegetables. We also know that the world can't produce more. So you're sitting in the middle of an artichoke field, kind of in, in uh, the heart of much, uh, you know, American production. And the reality is, you know, there isn't more acreage and uh, there isn't more water and there, there isn't more of these natural resources that, uh, you know, we depend on to produce food for this globe and for this country. And so what we realized was in order for humans to be healthy and live long and have a great life, uh, we need to figure out how to increase the amount of land in the world. Well, we have to do that without raising the Amazon. We have to do that without more environmental devastation. And so in order to do that, we basically have to create artificial land. And uh, that's kind of at the heart of plenty, right? Is this idea that we need to produce more. Also, the field needs to produce at capacity for as long as it can. And the only way we can do that is by building farms inside and condensing hundreds and hundreds of square acres into, you know, a couple. So- right concentrating this production. So that's that's why we exist. And you know, the the side benefit of it is that as we produce more indoors, closer to the consumer, we're able to give people things that taste amazing, uh, that look amazing, that have long shelf life. And so we basically make, you know, eating fresh healthy food both more affordable and accessible as well as pleasurable. 
Yeah, well, can you talk about that? Because I, I think one of the things that I do recall from my conversation with Matt three years ago was this idea of, of growing food for transport, you know, making sure it's something that can kind of survive the rigors of a, you know, an 18-wheeler trip from point A to point B and how that, what that means in terms of the quality of the food, how it tastes, you know, kind of how it turns out. Yeah. I mean, food has been bred largely for transportation, right? That is kind of the major quality limiting part of the supply chain. And so, uh, you know, there's kind of two ways to deal with that. One is to breed plants, to sit on trucks for long periods of time and to move, you know, across the country with, with less nutritional and quality loss, which is kind of where we've been at the expense of flavor oftentimes, yeah. or to grow locally, right? Those are kind of our two options. And the, the reality is that the limits of climate mean that you can only grow certain things locally. You know, California and so certain parts of Arizona are like the, the, the fruit and vegetable basket of the U.S. for good reasons, right? Yeah. You have predictable climate. You have control of the amount of water that you can apply when you have water. Uh, you have control of soil nutrition because, you know, these are not particularly massively fertile soils or controllable. And basically you have control, right? The yeah. variability of the environment is limited. But when you move to say like Albany, New York, you're dealing with a totally different set of constraints or Bozeman, Montana or Singapore or wherever we're looking, right? Like yeah. it's just no places as nice to grow food as kind of the five Mediterranean climates of the world. So um, that's something to contend with. And that's something that we solve. You know, when we move things indoors, we can give them the perfect climate every day of the year and uh, have consistent, uh, reliable output. What is the upshot of that in terms of the yield and kind of what you need to produce something that otherwise, if I'm where I am here in Castroville, you know, there's fields everywhere and it requires X amount of water and X amount of sun and X amount of time to produce a head of lettuce, for example. How does that compare to what you guys are doing? I mean, so we grow much faster, generally speaking. You know, the plants are, are healthier, they're stress-free. We use a fraction of the water. And so, you know, our water use is, is minute, mostly because, you know, in the field, when you put down water, when you're irrigating, 99% of that evaporates. Uh, hmm. And most of the water you give plants, right, it drives these metabolic functions in the plant. It's not, you know, some of it stays in the plant cells. Some of it is split, used for other things, but most of it just evaporates. And so, you know, in our farms, we capture all of that evaporated water. All that water vapor is condensed and put right back in the system. So we use a fraction of the water. We use a fraction of the land. And so we're able to grow a lot of food in a really small space. So like for one of our plenty farms, for the business to replace yeah. the production of, say, what we're building in Compton, uh, it would take us, you know, well over 700 acres to grow what we can grow basically on in a two acre facility. And frankly, only a fraction of that is actually used for growing. A lot of it is used for shipping and handling and all that stuff. So you're, you're building a new kind of quote-unquote farm in Compton. That's right. Yeah. So right now, you know, we're very focused on uh, the Compton farm. We're in, in the construction process right now. Why Compton? So we chose Compton because LA is kind of the heart of, uh, you know, like the, the cutting edge of American cultural movements. And uh, there's a lot of trendsetters. There's a lot of folks there that are looking to the future and saying like, what culturally can and should be true in five years, 10 years, 20 years. And then Compton is this amazing place, used to be agricultural. So Compton used to be an all agricultural land and has since, you know, evolved into a bit of a food desert. And, you know, one of the things as a business that we're really interested in, right, is like this idea of, of local agriculture moving into places where accessibility has been limited, where agricultural jobs are non-existent and providing those jobs and providing that access and I think it's just kind of uh, maybe maybe it's a romantic notion, but the idea of going to Compton that has this incredible legacy of agricultural production and kind of working to begin to restore that, I think is uh, something something really interesting. And I imagine getting a two acre warehouse in Compton. Are you building it or is it you retrofitting something? Uh, so we're retrofitting in Compton. But I imagine that was pretty cheap as well. By California standards. Yeah, by California standards, perhaps. Uh, <laughs> you know, um, obviously, California is uh, pricier than other parts of the country. 
But that's interesting. So it's part of it is just that that Compton piece and trying to kind of reintroduce that bit of its history. But it's also, it sounds like it's driven in part by marketing, this idea that, and I don't know why this popped in my head, but I remember seeing years ago, Leonardo DiCaprio showing up to the red carpet in his Prius. And that was a thing when, you know, the Prius was new and people are like, well, hybrid vehicles, what are those, blah, blah, blah. And you had all these Hollywood folks showing up to these glamorous events in a Prius. And it's kind of one of these things that helps people adjust their thinking. Is that the idea? Yeah, I mean, I think the focus in L.A. is obviously to like put our product, which is pretty fantastic stuff, in front of people who have outsized voices. At the same time, you know, it's an opportunity to put our produce in front of people who have been underrepresented from the distribution and access side of things. And so, you know, it's kind of this, you know, this interesting dichotomy of access and lack of access, right? Opportunity and lack of opportunity. And the ability of plenty to play a role in that, I think, is really exciting for us. And, uh, you know, I think that is really, honestly, like the story of agriculture in a lot of different ways, right? This kind of mixture of big changes that happen over time and that very few people think about or realize or understand but have massive impacts on quality of life and people's, you know, people's livelihoods. And so, you know, plenty moving into Compton, I think is a super exciting thing. You know, Compton, <laughs> it's kind of, it feels like a small town, honestly, you know, I've run into like the same people every time I've been down there right. to the extent that when like other plenty people go down there and they run into folks, Carmela will be like, Hey, say hi to Nate, right? <laughs> Where does this happen besides small town America and Compton? Like that kind of thing, I think, is really exciting. And I think it, it allows us to play a role in kind of a new change, right? Moving production back closer to the consumer, giving people, you know, ag jobs that haven't existed in these areas for 80 years. So how many people would a place like the Compton facility ultimately employ? Yeah, I mean, so uh, I'm not sure whether or not we're supposed to talk about employment numbers, but it's a meaningful amount. Are we in the hundreds or are we in the thousands? I would say less than 100. That being said, they're great jobs. Where historically right. in agriculture, the, the bulk of the opportunities were for folks who are um, you know, out in the field doing the labor, like field laborers, which is not typically the job that people get excited about doing. It's really hard on you, hard on your body. You know, basically what we've done is we've given all those folks tractors right, with their automation equipment. So it's like kind of like the, the dawn of the tractor and what that meant for small farmers to be able to replace, you know, livestock, which really help, you know, people be more efficient, but it's still backbreaking, pretty miserable labor. Replacing that with the tractor, that's kind of what we're doing again, right? As we're saying, hey, a lot of these processes that haven't been able to be automated and they lead to this really backbreaking, frankly, not awesome work, we're able to take that work yeah. and transform it. Right. With automation into something that is something that you can do very easily for, you know, eight hours a day and right. get off work and still feel great. Where are you from? What's your kind of what's your background? So uh, I grew up in Air Force Brat, but, you know, my family always kind of had ties to agriculture. And so, you know, my extended family and the generation before my father's generation were all very closely tied to the land. There's always kind of a romantic notion. My co-founders have similar stories and uh when I was going to college or contemplating going to college, one thing that I felt uh, was important, I was, I was actually living in China and I, I lived in this apartment that overlooked this threshing floor and all of the people of the village would come to the floor to dry garlic and dry the, uh, you know, different agricultural mm -hmm. products and thresh grain and do all of this work. And um, I sat there and I realized that this was kind of, this was like honest labor, right? And there, there are some great quotes about this, but, you know, the, the, the idea is, you know, growing food is simple. At the time, I thought it was pretty non-controversial. I've, I've learned otherwise. I just felt like this was a good thing to spend your life on and um, came back, went to school and uh, started thinking about this idea of how do you grow a lot more with less and how do you empower people to grow locally? Because I really felt from day one that local was such an important part of giving people access to fresh, healthy food. What were you doing in China? Was that with your family via the Air Force? No, it was basically like on a like a service trip, uh, working at a place that taught English and and taught good business practices. Basically, this was really interesting time in China, right. 
where, you know, all of the folks were coming from the country, massive structural change, right? Everyone's moving from the countryside to the cities for manufacturing jobs. And, you know, very few protections for workers. And there was a lot of kind of taking advantage of these folks that were moving into the cities. And so I was there with an organization that basically demonstrated what we would consider, you know, good business practices, which are really just treating people fairly and, and doing the right thing. VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. So what did you actually study? So um, I studied agroecology, and then I did a master's and a PhD in agronomy. So okay. uh, crop and soil science, which is pretty ironic because there's, I've slowly phased the soil out of what I do. So you study this, you study basically how to grow plants and how to do agriculture. How do you go from there to, you know what, we're actually going to take the farm out of the farm and put it indoors? What got you there? Yeah, I mean, it, it was an evolution for me. You know, my initial thesis was that we would have more local production if we had more small independent farmers growing close to the consumer base. That was the basis for my first company. So I started designing equipment first for greenhouse producers and then for indoor growers as the cost of LEDs dropped, as the efficiencies of that system improved. I see, to make cheap neighborhood greenhouses and whatnot. Exactly. And you know what I realized in that first endeavor was that my thesis was flawed. And it assumed that, you know, there were lots and lots of people who are great small farmers and great business people, which business is hard and farming is hard and finding folks that are both good at farming and business. You know, that's that's a rare breed of people. So I very quickly realized I I did the math after a couple of years and realized it was going to take something like 150 years to actually have the impact on the food supply that we needed, uh, in my opinion, to frankly survive as as a species. So uh, around that time, I ran into Matt Bernard, and he chatted with me about joining this startup that was focusing on, and you know, it kind of galvanized from there. That was around the time that I realized that my first premise was, was flawed. That calculation, the 150 years, what are the inputs to that calculation? Well, it was kind of the, the rate of expansion and the amount of food produced per farm. And that right. is the rate of expansion minus the number of folks that fail out. So you have 10 people that get started and uh, seven of them last the first two years and then five of them last for five years. And so you, right. you basically, after five years, have five running farms. And, you know, that's, it's a hard business no matter what. It's especially hard when you're trying to do everything yourself. And that is one really tough thing for small farmers, right, is marketing, yeah. sales, all of the management stuff, filing your taxes, keeping your books and keeping pests out of the farm and managing disease and driving yield like these are tough problems each individually and so that was what because plenty was started what in 2014 is that right yeah 2014 it was actually around that time might even been a a year earlier when matt and uh the other co-founder at the time jack oslin found me and started to sweet talk me into getting into the production into into things while you were thrashing around with your idea and realizing it wasn't going to work yeah i mean listen i mean it was working for us as a business the first business was 
doing well. I mean, it was, you know, six, 700% revenue increase year on year, but it didn't matter, right? Like it, it didn't ultimately do the thing that I wanted it to do. So, uh, yeah, they found me and said, Hey, we're getting to the production end of things. And this is a new, new thesis, right? This, this new idea is if we concentrate the folks that, that can go out and can raise the capital, you know, and they just have to do this like a machine, right? We can concentrate yeah. the folks who can manage, you know, the financial aspects of the business, manage the technical aspects of the business, design these super complex systems, or managing all of that under the same roof. At the time, I started to think, well, this is, this is kind of the way we want to go if ultimately we mm. want to, to build this thing. And, and I thought about it at the time. I still think about it this way now. I do believe that we're building a bit of a life raft for humanity which is, you know, climate change is impacting the field in pretty massive yeah. ways. You know, the world is getting less stable environmentally, not more stable. And the modern agricultural industry depends on stability year upon year. That's why we've moved to the areas we've moved to because of the most stable. They're an effort to de-risk production outside. And yeah. as this new set of risks enters into that production, it means that, you know, in order to make sure that we have a supply of nutritious food in the future, we have to build these farms. Uh, we have to double to triple the world's fresh fruit and vegetable output to make sure that as a species, we have what we need to survive. Was it hard to leave your first business or did you shut it down or did you hand it to somebody else or sell out? Or We transferred a lot of that into Plenty and mm-hmm. licensed off a lot of the IP to another business that really wanted to be in that space. And it was no, very successful. Uh, they're building farms all over the world, which is awesome. Right. So they're driving that local small farmer thing forward. And so just thinking about like what you grow indoors, as far as I can tell, it's mostly leafy greens. And then you you just announced this deal with Driscoll's, the berry company to do strawberries as well. Can you just describe for listeners what they see when they walk into a plenty farm? And I mean, some of the differences are obvious, but some of them are not. Yeah, I mean, so the first thing is somewhat unique is that everyone is gowned up, right? So if you were to walk into our farm, you walk into this basically locker room with foot baths and sterile everything, and you gown up. So head to toe, you know, hair nets, beard nets, gloves, washing of hands, foot covers, and then you walk through these foot washes to get into the farm. And the reason for that is, you know, we grow indoors and so we control what enters the farm. You know, we make sure that it's pathogen free because the goal is to provide a stress free environment for the plants by and large. So, uh, you know, the first thing is you look differently than you normally do. You behave differently. You walk in and you would see what looks like a very high tech manufacturing plant of some kind, relatively clean. And this is this is a hard thing to do with farms. Farms are biologically active. And so uh, you'd walk in, you'd see the seeding line, you'd see these kind of large structures for propagation, a large structure for our grow rooms and lots of conveyance. So lots of conveyor systems moving things around. And probably, you know, it would be very interesting to see. Uh, there are pictures online. There are some great videos there. But the thing that I think stands out about our farm is the degree of automation and the approach that we've taken because of kind of the central architectural idea behind our system, which is this idea of these vertical planes of production. And, um, you know, it kind of looks like walking into a very large library with those very tall bookshelves and the bookshelves can move. Things can move around, right, to maximize space. But the books are plants. The books are plants. Yeah, massive vertical planes of plants. And it's like someone took a field, you know, a flat field and folded it in half and stood it upright. There's plants on two sides of this. And this allows us to maximize basically the surface area of the farm within a volume. You know, the inspiration for that comes from nature. Like if you look at Anything that where biological surface area, you're trying to maximize it. This is a really common uh, thing that has evolved across many different systems to maximize that, that reactive surface area, that biological surface area. And so that's what we've done in the farm, right, is we've built this really complex space with massive growing planes, two sides, row after row after row. And um, it allows us to kind of manage the density between plants and then manage each tower individually, pull it out, harvest it transplant it, put it back in. That process is something that we're working on getting more and more efficient at day by day. I've seen I've seen a video of a robot arm taking a big section of wall and rotating it. Yeah, it looks very automated. Yeah, it has to be somewhat automated. These, these things are huge, right? They weigh a lot. Are you using, and this is a basic question, are you using dirt? So we use something that's very akin 
to like uh, the potting soil that you would use at home. So um, as you know, someone who once considered themselves a bit of a soil scientist, it's not technically soil. It is organic matter. So like chopped up coconut husk or peat. And uh, it, it looks a lot like the potting mix you'd buy from the store. Got you. And what is the interface between machine learning, you know, AI, small AI, big AI, whatever you want to call it, and what you're seeing happening there in terms of, because you have these big banks of lights as well, right, that are constantly being adjusted. And so if you could just explain kind of how that works, because I think that's an interesting aspect of it. Yeah. So, I mean, the place to start here is to say these farms are incredibly complicated. We have dozens and dozens of inputs, each of which is quite dynamic, and they result in very different outcomes, which are oftentimes hard to measure. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the difficulty of plants is plants are biological and they're highly variable yeah. and they contain, you know, all of these genes. Sometimes some turn off, sometimes some turn on. We know how to turn off and on many of them. Some of them also just turn off and on on their own. And so, you know, you can have these highly variable outcomes. And so the goal here is to get to consistent outcomes. And in order to do that, we have to measure things in new ways. So, for instance, every time we pull out a plug, we take a picture of every plug. The roots of every one. Of every single one. And we characterize the roots so we can look and we can image the roots and then measure the health of the plant or at least gauge like the status of the plant at that point in time and then tie that to an outcome, a harvest weight right? Or an in-spec right. harvest weight. And so, you know, we've got all these different types of measurement, lots of vision, lots of different forms of perception, uh, sensing, you know, we're, we're measuring nutrient solution, we're measuring biological load, we're measuring all of these different parts of the farm, thousands upon thousands of different variables. And, um, you know, there has to be a degree of reduction of complexity or management yeah. of that complexity that is non-human in order for us to figure out what the best treatment is. And uh, to that end, the ability to use software, the ability to use machine learning, the ability to use, you know, some of these techniques for managing that massive and complex data, data set with that variability in outcomes becomes critical. Not just, you know, this is a nice to have, but this is a need to have. And does that lead to things like tiny tweaks, like, I don't know, a shade of a different type of light that this basil likes or what have you? Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's crazy. What seems like a very small difference can have a massive impact, especially like as you move further and further upstream and process, right? So an example of this is we, we have uh, two seeding teams and this is all automated hardware. But, you know, what started to emerge from the data was that one seeding team somehow resulted in higher yields than the other. It's all automated equipment. It's just being managed by two separate teams. Yeah. So you spend a lot of time digging in and saying like, well, someone's doing something here right? Yeah. There, there is some physical difference in process, even though it's all automated. And those types of things drive improved outcomes, right? Because you, you dig in, you realize, oh, this team is, has added something here. And they've done it impromptu, but it's, it's driving success in the farm or it's driving failure in the farm. Did you figure out what that was? Was it like planting a seed a millimeter deeper or something? Yeah, there's been several instances, right? Like there have been instances where one team was like, taking a tray and running it back through the process an extra time or top coding slightly differently or, or using a different solution, yeah. right? They were siphoning from a different tank. You know, there's lots of those different things that are just kind of like operational learnings that are kind of interesting, right? And the ability to dissect the data yeah. allows us to understand them. My next question was going to be, why is this so hard? But I feel like we've kind of, we've, we're covering that. The reason I was asking that is because it does feel like right around when you guys were getting up and going 2014, 2015, there's a lot of companies. There's a whole kind of bloom of indoor farming companies. And generally the story is much like what you're saying, we're going to change the world. We're going to bring all this new fresh food to communities all over the place. And we're going to just roll out fleets of farms. And it's 20, almost 2021, and the fleets of farms are not there. There's maybe a couple, or like, you know, you guys have two two now? Yeah. Is that right? Or working on your second? Is it just simply, this is way more complex than any of us realized? And is there a worry that like, you know, there is this huge boom, like there always is with a new technology, and that as companies fail or don't deliver on their expectations, that could be bad for all of you? Yeah, I mean, I think, put it this way, I feel like in the last year or so, we've transitioned from uh, most people saying, 
well, maybe this indoor farming will be a thing to a place where everyone is saying, okay, it's going to be a thing. It's not a matter of if it's a matter of when, like now we understand the problem and we understand that there really is only one solution. What isn't, you know, talked about very much is the idea that there are only so many economical ways to do this, right? In a way that scales to make produce truly more accessible and as affordable as the field. And uh, that's ultimately the goal. Otherwise we're wasting our time. If we're just in this to grow niche, fancy greens um, for people with high incomes, I'm wasting my time. So, you know, I think what is true is that this is a capital intensive industry. So this will always require raising relatively massive amounts of capital to build farms. Farms are very big, very expensive. They're almost like utilities in a way, right? So they're almost like thinking about- um, Like building a power plant near a city. Exactly. And that requires a different kind of investor. And what we're doing right now is we're, we're, we're finding the match of, you know, as our risk come down, right? So as our perceived, the perceived risk of the industry drops, the number yeah. of investors that are able to enter this industry and invest in this industry grow. And so we're kind of at, on this precipice, right? Where we're, where we're sliding down the economic cost scale and we have more proof points. And really, um, you know, this, these are going to be great investors for folks. We just have to get the first few bites. Right. So is it the idea of like luring in like the world of these big, huge infrastructure investors who might otherwise be funding a toll road, which you just know what a toll road is. You know, it's going to produce X amount. It's not super sexy, but it's utterly dependable. That's right. So it's, it's this cost of capital matching the risk, right, of the opportunity yeah. and and, you know, frankly, this is going to be an industry that delivers really attractive returns. It's just got to get going. So I think what we're going to see is like the first few farms getting kind of attention. And, you know, we're going to see the, the cost of capital drop for these things. And they're going to really take off. But, you know, there are also a lot of folks that have chased this idea of go out and gobble up territory first and then figure out the technology later. And that, yeah. is, um, that is not an approach that, that Plenty has, has chosen. By and large, we have realized by building and tearing down farms that once you build a farm, it is very, very hard to make large changes to hardware, certainly, you know, because operating a farm is hard and operating a farm where you change things out is not just a human health and safety concern, but it's also just an operational difficulty. So at the end of the day, what we've chosen to do is nail the tech, invest, keep investing, nail the tech, make sure the economics work and then scale that. And so, you know, we're at the point now where, where we know the tech works, we hit the economics that we're looking for, and uh, it's time now to uh, scale these farms. How, how many times have you torn down and rebuilt the farm in San Francisco? Oh, many times. Uh, there was a time in, let's see, probably ending about six months to a year ago, where in 18 months, we tore down and rebuilt a version of the farm uh, 14 times in 18 months. That sounds so depressing. <laughs> <laughs> but it's amazing how much you learn every time you do it, right? And to some degree, the, the, the new reserve of patience that you access and build in, in an operational team every time you do that. Because, uh, you know, these are, these are hard problems. This is not just a technology issue. This is a biology. Was it hard to keep investors on board when you're, because you've raised now, I know you guys just raised another big round and it's up to about half a billion dollars you guys have raised. Was it hard to just those meetings with those investors to be like, yeah, this one rebuild number 13 in a year, don't worry, it's going to be fine. Were those difficult conversations? Sometimes, yes. By and large, though, one thing that Matt did really well, right, was picking great investors. And uh, by and large, we managed to pick some very visionary people, right? So some people that understood the big picture, which is, you know, take the entire fruit and vegetable industry of the globe, the value of that, and then multiply it by two or multiply it by three. And that is kind of the market opportunity. And um, folks that understood enough about ag to understand how hard it is to build really big industries, uh, new industries, build really big companies uh, in the space. And uh, I would say that they understood what we were trying to do. And they understood that this was an opportunity to build one of the largest ag companies in the world, right? Servicing a massive portion of the world population. So yes, you know, sometimes those are still hard conversations, right? Like becoming an yeah. operation, operating company is hard. This is just 
exceptionally hard work, but by and large, they're wise and thoughtful. And um, they allowed us to build a board of folks that are not just deep on this particular subject and this particular industry, but patient and uh, understanding kind of the opportunity in front of them. So it's a risk reward calculation that they're actively doing. I know that it sounds like what you've been doing is solving a series of problems, but it feels like, and correct me if I'm wrong, perhaps the biggest or most difficult is that cost question of like making this affordable to, you know, it's just another leafy green on the supermarket aisle. It's not the one that's three times as much as everybody else's. How much was that around just the energy cost? Because I'm just guessing that's the highest, your highest cost, or at least it was. Yeah, so it, it, it was, you know, the, actually, let, let me back up and say that, you know, when I got into this industry, I did not understand technology cost curves. Very few people do, period, let alone people coming from more traditional ag industries. And um, the one thing that I have come to, to know well is that you cannot discount the impact of technology cost curves. And what we've seen right. in this industry is we're not just riding a single cost curve. Everyone looks at LEDs and says, oh, well, LEDs are getting more efficient and much less expensive year on year on year. You know, there's this law that allows us to predict the efficiency and cost. What is also true is, you know, processing power is going up and getting cheaper, data storage, sensors and sensor tech, deployed AI, all of these kind of like component technologies are getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. And as we incorporate them into our technology suite, so this is like, you know, we, we've got a huge R&D team at Plenty, right? This huge R&D team is generating its own cost curve that's n- not entirely dependent on the cost curves of all these different components. And as we do that, what we do is we see like over the last two years, 700% yield gain. You, you don't see 700% yield gain in the field. That is not a thing. That has really kind of never been a thing, uh, except over like, say, 10,000 years. So, you know, we see these massive leaps in productivity. We see uh, 700% yield gain while the cost of energy is cut in half, for instance. And so what I will say is the leading cost of the farm changes constantly, right? So as we drive yield up, now maybe actually because we're measuring our energy inputs, you know, kilowatts of power to kilogram of production. As we drive production up, you know, it reduces the energy cost to produce that oftentimes. As we see changes in big giant structural changes in the energy industry, like this is another crazy thing, right? Is like electrical power is going to get cheaper and more sustainable, more renewable. It's going to be one of these things where probably in two or three years, it's going to be so cheap and so renewable that we're going to be really preoccupied with completely different problems. Because what you don't want is coal powered lettuce. Exactly. Coal powered lettuce is not what anyone wants to bite into. (laughs) The amazing thing is like, when you're farming outdoors, you have to use diesel. There are these fundamental dependencies. And when we move indoors, we break those. So like our farms are renewable energy, right? Why? Because they're all electrical. So as we like right. think about this larger global trend of electrify everything, right? That's the battle cry. Like save the world, electrify everything. Why? Because electricity is riding these technology cost curves of wind and solar and all of these other interesting technologies. And it's just going to keep getting cheaper and more sustainable, whereas diesel is diesel. I've written a lot about, and we've had on this podcast, folks, and like we've had people growing fish flesh in a lab. We've had the guys from um, Beyond Meat on the pod talking about kind of meat replacement, etc. And in each of those, there's been a big backlash from the cattlemen's industry, the, you know, whatever it may be, the fishing industry saying that's not meat. You can't call that meat. And kind of this whole explicit and implicit moves to, to slow them down. And I'm just wondering, have you guys had that, you know, you're saying you're calling a warehouse a farm, you're growing it in soil. That's not necessarily soil. Has there been any of that that you guys have experienced? Yeah, I mean, listen, anytime you're entering an old industry, there's going to be pushback. Yeah. That being said, what is also true is when it comes to fresh fruits and vegetables, there's two thirds the total market in unmet demand from a supply standpoint. And so by that, you mean that people need to be eating more of what you guys are producing than they are currently, right? Basically, you know, there's this massive amount of latent demand and supply can't keep up. So that's true. And so long as that's true, there may be some folks that try to turn this into an us versus them, zero sum game kind of scenario. 
the reality is we are a very, very long ways from even coming close to meeting demand, let alone, you know, competing with anyone else in a meaningful way. And uh, what is also true is like the field, we're dependent on the field. The field must keep producing. It is their moral imperative to keep producing, just as it, it is our moral imperative to keep driving the technology forward to grow the total capacity of the world to grow fresh fruits and vegetables. So, you know, it's kind of this thing where, you know, when we look at fisheries, there are some sustainable fisheries. There's also a lot of fisheries that are collapsing. So we do have a bit of a zero-sum game there. When we look at meat production, there's some sustainable beef and then there's a lot of unsustainable beef, right? And the reality is, you know, as as a globe, as a society, as people, as we try to move towards the future we want to live in that has the kind of environment that we want to live in, there's going to be some industries that are under pressure. I don't see the field being one of those. I see the field, you know, struggling to manage the environmental impacts of the coming years. Yeah. And we're here to help. And so there isn't, at least at the moment, an acute kind of indoor versus outdoor kind of fight happening. No, I mean, if you look at like the Driscoll's partnership, right? So that's yeah. a great example of how we're working with, with folks who grow primarily in the field. They want to have farms that are closer to the consumers, right? And, and they look yeah. to indoors as a way to reliably produce high quality product. And so, um, you know, we look to them and say, wow, you guys are incredible. You've got all this experience. You have all of this knowledge, all this historical uh, knowledge. You've got a massive market access. How can we collaborate? How can we work together? And I kind of think that our situation may be somewhat unique in compared to, say, like lab-grown meat, in that I'm hoping that what we can have with the field is an understanding that we're all working together to supply that demand. What are the limits of this? Because right now you've you've starting out selling a few greens and now soon to be strawberries, but obviously these all lend themselves to one degree or another, like to being stacked in big vertical walls, etc. We talk about fruits and vegetables, and you get to the bigger stuff. Just the physics of all of those, it would seem to me means that there's only so much of the universe of plants that it would actually work with something like this. Yeah, you know, what I'll say to that is every single year, there are a list of things that seem reasonable from an economic standpoint, and there are a list of things that seem unreasonable. And a year later, we're always wrong, right? So the amazing thing about these technology cost curves and this internal cost curve that we're building around our platform is that every single year, the doors open to new crops. So, you know, we do the calculations on the cost of fixing a mole of carbon, how much of that carbon is saleable, and what that means from an economic standpoint for the business. And every single year, it gets more and more economical. Five years ago, I would have said, you know, okay, lettuce, primary production, right? Leaves, this primary production is the most efficient production. That's the only stuff we're going to be able to grow indoors. I was wrong. Today, you know, like we're working on strawberries, we're working on tomatoes, we've been breeding tomatoes for two years. You know, we have all of these crops that are sliding into the economical category day by day by day. And what I would say is like, I've been wrong enough over the last five years that I'm not going to look to the future anymore and say like these crops are are off the list. Kind of the new position that I've taken is everything will be on the list at some point in time. Even trees. Even trees. Interesting. Now, the way we grow those may be by leveraging kind of this idea of uh, there are some places where it's very inexpensive to fix carbon. So the field has historically been an inexpensive place to fix carbon. Greenhouses are slightly more expensive, but still, you know. When you say fixed carbon, what is that? What do you mean? That means, you know, like photosynthesis, you know, fixes carbon, uses energy to fix carbon. And the cost of fixing that carbon changes based on where you're at and the system that you're using and the efficiencies of that system the mechanics of that system, all of these different things. You know, what we've come to realize is that gains in in breeding, gains in editing technology, gains in our own uh, internal cost curves at Plenty mean that very few things end up off that list, including, you know, I believe down the road, commodity crops. So traditional row crops, probably something that we will be looking at. It may be 20 years from now, but they will all move indoors. And, uh, I'm just wondering, in terms of your marketing plans for the Compton facility, is straight out of Compton going to be involved? Like, you know, lettuce straight out of Compton or something like that? It just feels like it's sitting there. (laughs) I hope so. (laughs) 
when will that when will that start producing we will be uh bringing that online here this spring and uh slowly ramping it up so you know produce will start hitting the market in the summer ramping over the summer into the fall and next winter the capacity of that farm is massive so uh you know it's not going to be all at once it's going to be slowly as we make sure that everything runs the way we want it to run as we train folks as we hire folks and you know ultimately it's going to be processed there but something we're really excited about right Led us straight out of Compton. That's I think that's the name of this podcast. Love it. <laughs> I'm on board. <laughs> well, look, I think those are all my questions. Unless you think there's anything else we've missed. Yeah, those are great questions. Thanks, uh, thanks for the time. Really appreciate it. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Nate for taking the time to chat. I want to thank you for taking the time to listen, as always, and for giving us a rating and review. Sorry, I got to get that in. Um, I'm curious, though, what you all think. You know, how much of this is actually applicable if in 20 years it'll be pretty normal for us to buy these kind of indoor farm-grown plants and veggies and salad, etc. Or will, if it were made kind of a niche thing. Still can't get my head around the idea that you can do this with trees. Anyhow, thank you again. I will be back next week with another episode. And of course, I'm writing this week. We may be doing something on uh, the Plenty Guys or we may be doing something a bit longer term on them but i do think there's still a lot to go for there especially when you think about the meat fish eggs there's all these kind of new synthetic ways to do this or kind of new tech driven ways to do it i think the whole future of food thing um if you're a listener of the podcast you know i find really fascinating anyhow that is it stay safe stay sane talk to you next week bye-bye VoiceOver describes what's happening on your iPhone screen. VoiceOver on settings. So you can navigate it just by listening. Books, contacts, calendar, double tap to open. Breakfast with Anna from 10 to 11. And get on with your day. Accessibility. There's more to iPhone. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.